Welcome to Hot Springs Village Inside Out, a weekly podcast where Hot Springs Village, Arkansas is the star. Join me, Randy Cantrell, and my co-host Dennis Simpson as we discuss the history, facts, people, places, events, lots more surrounding Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. Visit the website at hotspringsvillageinsideout.com. here with with michael murphy and miss spears melissa spears today who we are pleased and thrilled they are both superintendents of the respective school districts Uh, melissa you are with jesseville is that correct that is correct yes and then michael you're with fountain lake right yes yes well at least this week right that that's what (laughs) every week that's what's happening at this time these folks have some wonderful stories we can't get to wait to dive in there are challenges with school systems. There's challenges all over with everything post-COVID. Melissa, what's, let's start with you first. What's it like at the Jesseville School District? What are the challenges? Are there salary trouble, troubles? or you, you just got a money machine in the back. You just turn out <laughs> some more, right? No, we don't. Uh, that would be nice, but we could probably get in trouble for that. Um, I think, yes, salaries are probably one of our biggest challenges, um, especially with new things that come down. The state has uh, recently said we have to increase salaries for teachers, beginning teachers to a certain, uh, to a new minimum. And and so we have done that. Um, We've also had to increase minimum wage for our classified personnel. We are competing with um, different businesses who have been able to increase their starting salaries. Uh, We have a McDonald's just up the road, and I believe you can go there and start for $15 an hour. Um, at McDonald's and they're helping pay for your college and different uh, now, things. Hang on, hang so, on. Let me get this up. This is McDonald's. Hang on. Cause I, I, this would be a step up for me. I, mean, I think me and Randy <laughs> could make a great improvement here, but, but, and, and it, it, you know, I think when we think about schools, we think about teachers, but I mean, you have custodial staff, you have cafeteria workers. I mean, yes. across the gamut, right? I have paraprofessionals in, that are in the classrooms that are working with students. And so, yes, it is a challenge uh, because the pot of money that I get every year is limited um, as to what what I have available to pay those salaries and benefits. And so um, when I ha- am handed increases like that that I have to make, I have to take a good serious look at that and say, am I going to have to cut some programs, some programs yeah. for kids? So, so th- that is a challenge. So luckily, Michael, you don't have any of these problems at Fountain Lake. Y'all are just rolling in the bucks and school is just blowing, right? Well, you know, it depends on who you ask. (laughs) Since you're asking me, I would tell you that those same challenges exist. And, uh, you know, when Melissa and I have conversations about budgets, just like any business model, uh, you want to monitor and manage your reoccurring costs. And so those salaries that she's discussing, whether that is uh, recruitment and retainment of bus drivers, whether that is paraprofessionals, uh, custodians, uh, it's that balance of paying a, uh, a living wage. Uh, and, and in most of those instances, I'll be very honest with you, a lot of our people on the classified side have secondary jobs. So they're working for us and to make ends meet, they're oftentimes picking up other part-time employment opportunities because uh, unfortunately, a lot of those nine-month positions, if you look at the gross of the earnings there, it'll be between $17,000 and $21,000. And so 
when you look at that, that's, that's poverty line wage, uh, but it is a nine month typically. Uh, so it does provide some opportunities for full-time employment in the summer. Uh, people that migrate to education for employment uh, most of the time are doing it for two reasons, the love of the children and the work and uh, thinking they're making a difference on a continuum in the lives of people. And then the other thing that I think a lot of people choose education, it, it allows for a paralleled schedule of the children when they're going to school and when mom and dad are off that becomes very convenient. And so when school's out, everybody's out. And, and so uh, I think that's the other reason that people choose to uh, uh, sign up for education is, is the convenience of the schedule and uh, truly believing they can impact the lives of others. Well, now, and, and Michael, we're going to come back to you just in a second. And I understand the, the great stories. And I think that kind of puts it in perspective for us. Melissa, how, how long have you been at, at, uh, at uh, Fountain, uh, excuse me, at Jesseville? And, and, and you're on the end of the earth, right up against the, the National Forest. So that's where the world ends. That's where the flat earthers go. Or right? it starts, or this is where <laughs> the world starts. Uh, I've been um, in the Jesseville School District since 1998, spring of 98. I started in a classified position and, and then I've worked as a teacher. I worked uh, as a principal, curriculum director. This is my fourth year as superintendent. Wow. Wow. And, and, and love it, hate it. It's okay. Great. Rewarding. What? Um, it depends on the day. No, <laughs> I, I love it. I love it here. This is my home. This is, uh, this is where hopefully I get to retire from. Um, it's uh, my, my mother graduated from this school. My husband graduated here. Our two children graduated here. So, and I love my job. I love being able to work with students. I love being able to work with adults. And uh, it's a great place to be. Give us just a couple of stats, if you can. Roughly how many people, zero through 12 or K through 12, and, and how many of those come from the village, or roughly? For students, uh, we have roughly 824 students uh, okay. right now, and about 45% of those are from Hot Springs Village. Does that number vary a lot over the years? I mean, 10 years ago, did you have more people, less people? We did. We, we have been as high as 914, I think, a few years ago. And um, we've been as low as 798 within the last five years. It, it does. It, it's a variable number. People moving in um, can't afford to live here, move out. Uh, mm -hmm. people come in, students come in to live with their grandparents for the time being, and then maybe get to transition back to mom and dad. So it is a, a fluid student population. Michael, you see that same kind of thing? Very similar in terms of uh, the dynamics. Uh, I have a few more students uh, throughout the district. Our district spreads more of a, of what I would call east and west towards Hot Springs and towards Benton. So we serve, uh, we've served since I've been in this role, we've served as many as uh, 1,450 students and uh, currently serving around 1,300 to 1,325 is where we've seen the enrollment this fall fluctuate to. Well, I, I guess, uh, no, Michael, if I'm not mistaken, you have a millage increase coming up. Is that correct? Is there a vote for that? Yes, yes. We have a facility proposal that uh, we're allowing everyone to uh, 
embrace as, as taxpayers. So uh, that, that vote will occur in February, February the 8th. Uh, it's a very important time for our school district. We are trying to do our very best to educate our community in the context of the facility build out. Mm -hmm. uh, it really has three, uh, three elements of the proposal. Uh, first of all, it uh, is, is allowing us to have a new elementary school. Uh, it will have uh, a component that addresses uh, high school classroom space with a workforce development center. Uh, in that facility, it'll also have a community center approach with a performance arena. So that space becomes uh, a space that the community uses as well as the students at different times of the day. And then, of course, uh, expanding roadway and accessibility and parking. Uh, ADA accessibility on our campus is a major challenge. And so this allows for our footprint to become uh, you know, meeting a compliance threshold that fortunately, if you're grandfathered into it, not meeting ADA uh, compliance as it relates to parking standards and, and uh, pedestrian egress, uh, you don't have to make those modifications. Uh, but when you have a new facility build out, it will have to meet uh, the current standards of ADA uh, specs. So uh, all of that is a part of, of the overall proposal and the community would be authorizing the school district to borrow $44 million to be paid back over 30 years. Over 30. Okay. So, and, and just rubber to the road, roughly how big of an impact would this make on the average homeowner that has a $200,000 home? What would that do to them? $200,000 home of, uh, that would be a $200 increase on an annual basis. So about 12 to, well, what, what's that? $15 a month? Yeah. Short of 16 ish, I would say yeah. uh, on a monthly basis. Yes. And, and the so, other thing with, yes, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I just, please proceed. Well, I, I was going to kind of frame, uh, because the village is a melting pot. I came here from Missouri, had this position six years, uh, you know, visiting with you, you were kind of from the area, but we have people here that, uh, that have paid taxes in a lot of different ways. Mm. And so, you know, statutorily, Arkansas uses what's called property tax as a method to fund public schools. And so each school in the state of Arkansas is funded through property tax. And, and that's where the term mill kind of evolves. And the majority of us would pay to the county uh, the amount based on uh, the value that we have in a home. Uh, contradictory to the approach we use with the Property Owners Association, where uh, all through, you know, you and I, you're sitting on your porch, I'm here in my office. And, and so when the POA increased the overall assessment, because you and I own a home, regardless of whether your home is a $100,000 home or a $600,000 home, the assessment increase is equivalent. That's more of a fair tax approach where schools have designed a method to pay based on the overall value of the given home. So a $600,000 residence will be paying a larger lump sum than a $100,000 residence. Mm. Just wanted yeah. to make that. Not a flat across the board fee. I think Randy has a term for property tax in Texas. It's called extortion. Is that the term? I just say it's criminally high. <laughs> Michael, Michael, give us some sense. Um, you know, Melissa told us, so number of students and percentage of those students that are from the sure. village. Well, uh, you know, I, I said well over 1300 is, is uh, what we've been serving. 
<clears throat> we'll have roughly 250 students to uh, 300. I've seen it as high as 300. Um, so I, I would say right now around 255 is coming out of the village. We make a cross section when I said east and west. Uh, that encompasses uh, pretty much three-fourths of the village, all of the east gate side of the village, uh, marginal all the way into, if you're familiar with the village, uh, the Coronado area, even back towards the P Property Owners Association offices is all a part of the Fountain Lake School District. And then Jesseville uh, picks up all of the west gate area and all the mountainous area. Uh, and, and there's times where we're able to roll buses and there's certain sections that west gate area that are extremely challenging if we get just a little bit of snow. That really can be very much. <clears throat> M Melissa, did you say how many bus routes do you have going through Hot Springs? I mean, through the village, the West End? I've got either five or six that so, go into the village. So let's, let's recap this sentence here real quick and correct me if I'm wrong. So uh, the, uh, uh, Fountain Lake has physically more space but you're covering a more dense area on the West End, which is historically more, more, uh, more development there, I guess I would say. Well, Michael, let me throw you the hard ones here. Sure. Man, you know, you got so much money. I mean, you guys are so well-funded. You know, we got all these properties out here, if you could see beyond the fog, you know. We've got all these properties that people are paying, paying property tax on, and, and nobody's getting any benefit from it. It goes to the county, and we don't get any money back. And, and then you got all these, these parentless, these childless people out here. You got, you should, guys should just be rolling in it, right? Did I, did I summarize that, that uh, theoretically? Well, you know, uh, yes, there's been times where I've heard that before, believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> In the village? No, no. <laughs> so I'll take a stab at trying to give an explanation of, of the funding of schools and the current position of Fountain Lake, and we can kind of coincide that to Jesseville. Uh, first and foremost, I would say that, uh, you know, every state is responsible for public education. And, and the rationale behind and the design model of public education is to enhance a democracy and a workforce for the next generation. So we all know there's a purpose for public schools. I'm a product of public school, proud to be a product of public school and was able to accomplish what I have based off the educational opportunities I received. So, uh, you know, it's, it's that pay it forward mentality of providing that. And so, the real question is that you're kind of driving at is uh, how is the school funded? And, and so if we're paying this property tax, uh, what is there in a quality measure? Because there's not a village at every corner. And so if there's not a village at every corner, when I drive through, if you've ever driven through Poem going towards uh, Sheridan, it's one of the lowest assessed value property areas in the state of Arkansas. And, and so Poen receives all of its money from the state and very little of its money from local effort, where Jesseville might receive the majority of its money. Um, you're short of 50-50, I think, aren't you, Melissa, because Correct. of the current dynamic that you have as it relates to the amount of assessed value, which is the properties, along with the number of students that we serve. So the other variable that always comes into play is the number of children you have. If we had 4,000 students in the Fountain Lake District, we would be receiving state aid. 
but because we received 1,300 students overall, when the divisor is created based on the local property tax we receive, our per pupil expenditure exceeds what the state is willing to provide. Now, with that being said, let's do some simple math. Uh, either of the two of you, let's hypothetically say that, that we're receiving $1,500 per child more than what the state is providing. And we have 1,300 students in terms of that amount, then that moves the overall amount of funds that we have in terms of flexibility beyond the state. It gives us a latitude to provide some additional programming, uh, but it doesn't flush us out with the ability to uh, build extraordinary buildings, uh, do things well above and beyond. Um, you know, here again, the other thing that uh, I've had some discussions with property owners about is we're just getting ready for reappraisal. And reappraisal is going to reset the clock on the values of property. We've had this discussion here today about uh, if we had these limited number of uh, students attending schools, well, why is that? That's because the majority of those households are individuals who are older. They've raised their children. In many instances, they're beyond the age of 65. And so if they're beyond the age of 65, they can apply for the Homestead Exemption Act, which actually freezes the value of the property, regardless of a reassessment year or not. So when you look at what the money, this all this money, the money that potentially could come into the school in a reassessment year, if that's a frozen value of property, if you were paying $2,600 in your tax bill, reassessment comes through, you're still gonna pay exactly $2,600 because the overall value of your property is frozen in time. And there's values of property on the Eastgate side that have been frozen for 20 years based on the age of the homeowner. For 20 years. And you're telling me that property has not truly a, a set, a increased in value. Of course it has in 20 years. But, but because they're homestead okay. locked in, they haven't gotten any more. You, 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 they don't pay any more taxes, which is the basis for how all the education has, right? Well, well I mean, they, don't pay an, they don't pay an increase. I, I want to be very careful here. And, and, and we don't make the rules. We just abide by them. And so right. I'm thankful that there is a mechanism because the intent in the state of Arkansas is to make sure that an individual who is maybe on a fixed income is not forced to experience in a 20 year window, a spiraling inflationary measure that they may not be able to afford. And so uh, I, I like the latitude that it provides for the village in that context. It's just uh, when, when you think of the broader picture as a school superintendent, we're collecting revenue, each of us, and we're monitoring the revenue collection. And there's been those who have gone before us uh, through litigation that have made sure that the local revenue paid remains with the local school district. There was a point in time where the excess of 98% had to be turned over to the state and it divvied up somewhere else. And so uh, when, when this is paid by the local taxpayer, it goes to the county and does come back into the district coffers in that regard. And uh, to kind of summarize, we're funded at roughly 80% locally about nine and a half percent through the federal government and the rest through the state. And, and Melissa, if you want to kind of give just that generalized breakdown so that we can do that comparison, why don't you kind of 
help us out. Yes, and I don't have those numbers right off the top of my head, but um, we do receive, I want to say it was 12 to 13 percent from the federal government um, based on our Title I numbers, uh, where we are poverty-wise, we get a, a decent amount of money that way. We're also a provision to school um, for the, used to be the no, um, National School Lunch, NSLA, uh, ESA now, we get money that way too. And then we raise, uh, the rest of it comes through our, our state, um, our property taxes about 50% and then right. about 50% from the state. Well, that that okay. kind of shows you there's a, a difference of 30% between Melissa's district and our district on local effort. That's all I was driving. And literally five miles away, maybe? Uh, eight, maybe. Something who's like counting when you're going down Highway who's 7, counting? right? That's who's right. counting? Well, Michael, seems we like it's about 30 miles since <laughs> we've been doing the construction. With the construction, <laughs> that's right. We have a neighbor that lives behind us on uh, here on Lake DeSoto, and they have this beautiful three-story house, and they're from London, England. And I said, how do you get from London, England to Hot Springs Village, Arkansas? And the guy said, it's not a straight trip. It's not <laughs> a right. not a straight road, not a straight road. Michael, we skipped over some stuff. Give us your background. How long have you been in the area? Where did you grow up? Sure. I grew up uh, just north of uh, Mountain Home, Arkansas. Uh, enjoyed uh, living in, in southern Missouri. And, and so uh, went to school in Branson there at College of the Ozarks and, and started my teaching career in 88, 89. So that, that uh, is correct me. Let me let me reject just for a moment. For those sure. of you who don't know or are listening internationally, that is known as the School of Hard Work, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Am I mistaken? My first job was uh, a maintenance man in plumbing, and, and I learned mm -hmm. a few things. I, I understood what 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 uh, went downhill. And <laughs> but, water, uh, water, water yeah. goes downhill. Water with other things, with other things. So you, you were at the College of the Ozarks, where you, you basically, if those of you that don't know, you you basically work as part of your tuition, uh, mm -hmm. and and as opposed to work study in some colleges where you sit around and help them pour store books. This is real work. They really put you to work at well, there's at College a lot, of, a lot of different jobs and and uh, great experiences. Wouldn't really trade it for anything. It was a testament of uh, perseverance. Uh, they design it in a manner to see if you can get through the other side. I mean, really? it, it, uh, uh, the intentionality of it is, is it's very structured convocations, uh, you know, every other Sunday chapel, uh, it, they set the rules and you're either going to abide by the rules or they'll find somebody else step in and take your spot. And so uh, with that, that I embraced that process. And, and I think it really helped shape my character to kind of deal with the challenges you take on in public education and leadership as a whole. And so I uh, was very blessed to uh, play ball there, walked on, played ball four years in baseball and uh, attained my degrees and, and uh, you know, have spent roughly 27 years uh, in, in building level to district level administration. And this is my 18th year to serve as a school superintendent. So I've just, uh, I've had a very blessed career. Uh, this is my sixth year to kind of uh, hang out in the village, get to work and be a part of the village and, and all the amenities of, of central Arkansas is truly a blessing to be able to do that and go to work every day and, and serve children. So uh, um, wouldn't trade it 
for anything else and look forward to continuing to serve uh, here uh, locally. And, and I am, uh, I guess, an outsider who came to the village to become a resident. Well, I was going to say, and I'm just, I'm just nosy because I mean, Fountain Lake is not technically in the village, although it does encompass part of it, but I mean, you could have, you could have lived anywhere. You could have lived in Jesseville by Melissa. You could have been in the national forest, but you chose the village. Can I ask why? Well, you know, there's certain things as a school leader. Uh, I always describe any leadership moment is uh, you take care of the little things, the big things take care of themselves. And even though it's a little thing, uh, as a school leader, uh, you don't have to justify paying taxes to another public entity when you can choose to reside where you work. And, and so, you know, little things can become big things. And, and in the dynamics of Melissa's line of work and mine, uh, there are a lot of things that, uh, you know, crisis can be around the corner and it will be well beyond our control. And so what I've always chosen to do as a leader is make sure that you control what you can control and then you make sound decisions around the things you can't control. Does that make sense? Well, I'm just looking at Melissa nodding and thinking, amen, right, sister? Yes. <laughs> yes. And you have to you have to learn early on to differentiate between the two. What can I control and what can what is out of my control? How how do you, you sleep? find out you can control very little? <laughs> how, how how do you sleep so well at night? Well, I can't fix some things. Yeah. Some things I can, some things, you know, and yeah. Randy has talked about how he, he works with when we interviewed Chief Middleton, uh, you know, one of your phrases there, Randy, I thought was remarkable. He said, you know, uh, in the news cycle, uh, every police chief is is one news cycle away from being <laughs> blambasted or blown up or whatever. And you can, you guys are in the same position. I mean, at, at any time, you know, that we can be sticking a mic in front of your face and going, well, did you know they were deranged? Did you, you know, so it, the pressures and the, well, let, let me give just a quick story. I used to work with uh, the KIPP schools in Helena. And if I'm not mistaken, I went back and did some research. 93% of their people qualified for the free lunch program, which would be, did you, is that title one? Is that what you called that, Melissa? Okay. Uh, National school lunch is just, it's ESA now. But okay. Title One is is also tied to economics. And, and and for those that don't know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Michael and Melissa, a lot of your funding is determined by what your poverty level is, and your poverty level is determined by how many people qualify for free lunch. Okay. Yes. So yes. therefore, for for example, we would do work in in Helena, Arkansas, and we would send them a literally a hundred thousand dollar bill for these tons of technology and infrastructure we had done, and they would write a check for seven thousand dollars, and the federal government would cover ninety three percent of that, or ninety three thousand dollars, and because the the type of work that we did, we saw a lot of these high percentage schools. Uh, what percentage would y'all say, are y'all in the top third of Arkansas? Are you in the top half or? My, my title one, my, my poverty level is 74% uh, here. But again, all of our students, because we, several years ago, we, we qualified, we reached over that 70% qualifying for free and reduced lunch. We uh, became a provision to school. So all of my students get to eat breakfast and lunch every day, free of charge. Um, and we pay for that. We pay for those students. Well, 
right now during the, the pandemic, all of our kids would get to eat free anyway. But um, in a non-pandemic year, we pay for the meals for those students who are not, don't qualify for free and reduced through that ESA money that we get, that categorical well, money. I'm going to split hairs just for a minute because I don't know this answer. The staff that serves that free lunch, they have to be paid for, whether it's a free lunch or a not or a whatever, the staff and all the facilities mm-hmm. and all that, mm-hmm. those still have to be in place. The government may provide free food, but am I right? Well, they, they provide us, um, we get ESA categorical funding. Funding, right. Um, right, based on having reached that over 70%. So we get that in in dollars that comes mm-hmm. in and there are certain things that we can spend it on and different ways that we can use it. And one of the things that we spend it on is to pay for the meals that are in excess of those who qualify for free and reduced, wow. if I'm helping. But, no, but it goes does, to yeah. pay for salaries for paraprofessionals in the classrooms. It goes to pay for um, technology. It goes to pay for, we have um, an additional school nurse. It goes to pay for that. It goes to pay for our police officer that's on campus. So those types of things. Well, Michael, how do y'all qualify? Is there, is there a matching number or what? Yeah, well, uh, you know, first and foremost, getting parents to fill out forms creates the number. So if you have a lack of participation in filling out the financial information, which many people in today's time uh, are reluctant to provide financial information to the government. And, and uh, so with that, right now, we're running about 54% of the overall population that would be identified as free and reduced. Uh, but we do have roughly 28% of that population that lives below the poverty line. So that, uh, that tells us that when we open our schoolhouse doors, even though we may have a threshold of revenue that is coming locally, that, uh, you know, I think as we were discussing kind of before we came on the air, that the different types of parents and the dynamics of, of a blue collar community versus a white collar community, the affluence of the majority of these children is, uh, you know, there's a segment of our population, almost one third, that resides in generational poverty. And, and so you're trying to uplift people out of a cycle of poverty that uh, is, is somewhat ingrained and can be very challenging for us. And uh, just gaining it, getting that group, uh, public schools failed maybe a couple, two or three generations prior to the children walking through the door and getting these people to engage, come to a parent-teacher conference, kind of follow the direction their child uh, is how they're doing in school. Are they engaged? Do they enjoy school? In many instances, none of those conversations occur. School is just a place where that child may land. And, and so therefore, whatever happens with that child is done through our paraprofessionals, through the influence of our teachers and through the dynamics of our principals and the relationships that are built locally. And the unfortunate thing is, is we got about six and a half hours a day to build those relationships five days a week. And so numerically, we don't have as much time as what those kids experience on the other side. Would, would you call it warehousing of some sort? Well, you know, I mean, it, it's every, every situation is different. And, uh, you know, when you look at 
the impacts of poverty and you look at this, the research around Ruby Payne and, and the conditioning that employees take on, the fundamental thing that uh, our employees in, in both of our districts uh, inherently have to have an acceptable willingness to take on the child they receive. Mm -hmm. uh, our employees cannot be asking for a child that looks different because the fact the you know when these doors open uh those parents are giving us their very best and and in many instances the very best is is a very challenging child that uh, has significant behavioral issues in this day and time based on the last year and a half we're just trying to help <clears throat> quite frankly support kids with routines uh, we found when we came back in out of this whole uh video mentality of education that uh, many of our kids uh, did not have a strong enough sense of structure around them to coexist with their peers. And, and so uh, just getting them to cope with each other uh, became a challenge. So, so what did we lose during the pandemic when we all went remote? Did we lose, and, and I'm, I'm, this is not a fair question, I know, but did grades fall off 10%, 15%? You, you just, from what you're saying, Michael, I heard you say in my simple mind that we lost a, lost a sense of social balance and a social community. And we had to rebuild that when, you know, that that's one of the deals, you know, kids coming back to school, let's work together. Let, let's learn to, to, to play and work together. But, but what did we lose academically, Melissa? Did y'all have a fall off or was there an issue? We have had some. Um, but our staff has been very um, intentional and targeted to catch those kids up. Um, we did a very targeted summer school last mm -hmm. year. Um, over the summer in July, we've been very, very intentional with a lot of our uh, interventions this school year, this first semester, to get those students caught up and to help them grow, um, to push them to to give them that sense of of hard work and grit and determination. So um, and I would kind of echo that too. the social, emotional, that that learning to um, interact with one another. And I, I think COVID didn't help that. But I think um, social media, I, I think that we were seeing some of that even before COVID. Social media is is horrible for that. And we thought that was just with adults in the village. Who knew? Who knew? No, <laughs> no, it, it's it's terrible. Uh, and I, I think then, you know, when students see that and then they see how adults treat each other and, and not tolerant of each other, it, it bleeds over into the classroom. And that's that's a battle we fight. Yeah, I've shared one of these stories before. Y'all, you remember the, the musical group Heart Anne and Nancy Wilson? Uh, Ann Wilson had lived in Portland her whole life and got uh, married and moved to the panhandle of Texas, of, of, uh, of Florida. And, and she said, you know, I was always liberal and that was my mindset and that was okay. But she said, we always talked about tolerance and how we should be tolerant. And she said, I didn't know anything about tolerance till I moved to the panhandle of Florida and realized I was a minority and mm -hmm. I needed to be tolerant and they had to be tolerant of me. And I'm like, when you're in your own little microcosm, you don't have to worry so much about that. But Michael, eh? Mm -hmm. Well, Same, you so know, the only other thing that I would share is, is as we look at that, that diversity, 
uh, we're more of a, a diverse population, both uh, Jesseville and Fountain Lake of, of kind of the haves and have nots versus the white uh, African-American and Asian. Uh, both of us run well beyond 95% as it relates to uh, uh, Caucasian. And so we have very limited diversity, but our diversity does exist in, in that the, the maybe individual student groups that do not reside in poverty versus those that do. I do have some children come to our school that, uh, hey, they're, they're pulling up and some pretty nice stuff, uh, you know, probably if, I, you know, better than most of what the employee base has. So those children, you know, parking a car beside an old beater that, that, that they may or may not be putting air in a tire to even get it out of the parking lot. Uh, and that all kind of is the melting pot of diversity within a high school. You know, the other thing that I would go back and kind of touch on is we think about school and, and I think about my career and, and continuing, you know, and, and the intentionality that we have around instruction. <clears throat> As, as we look at education, the models of learning, whether it be literacy or whether it be just the simplistic of uh, numbers, uh, you know, that readiness to learn and that overall relationship, I think for years with No Child Left Behind and other elements, we because we had computers and we had data, we got buried into a statistical analysis that we could create an outcome based on pedagogy. And the instructional model without a sound relationship as a foundation does not create a child who has a willingness to learn and a child that is unwilling to learn, regardless of the quality of the curriculum, regardless of the intentionality, will have minimal results. And, and we look at, you know, it, we're results oriented as a nation and, and we're trying to find how do we take an urban <clears throat> environment and produce a quality outcome. And, and we have miserably failed. When you look at large school models, whether that be in St. Louis, I was an hour and a half or an hour outside of the St. Louis area finishing my career. Uh, there are failing schools across the United States. And so uh, the school is, is took it on the chin as, as the element of the end result when you know, we've maybe not gotten to a strong enough amount of money to build up the foundational element of the family mm. and that structural component that, that would allow for that safety net to exist in the school setting. And so that's, I keep kind of hanging around as, as an educator to think that, uh, you know, can we better serve the family, whether that be through the health clinic providing health-related services now. Each of us have a health clinic, whether that be through additional after-school programming. Uh, unfortunately, for some of these families, if we're going to get them out of generational poverty, it takes an enormous amount of tools beyond the eight to three environment. And, and so that's kind of the dynamic of the vision of what we're trying to create in our public school system. And to do that, I've got to have space and I've got to have quality facilities. And, and I've got to put myself in a position so that we can create the support structures for these families to erode drug addiction, get methamphetamines, make that not a part of the, the structural culture. And those are the things that people don't want to talk about. <laughs> that, that's the thing, you know, let's, let's talk about the, the, the you know, the good. And, and it's the bad and the ugly that create an average school. Because if you can't change 
the performance, if you can't change the mindset of the child and, and, and give them, they've got to want to come to school and they've got to enjoy school and they've got a, teachers loving on them and, and, and they've got to feel comfortable when they're going back home in that same context. And just here recently, you know, we're using our ESSER funds to uh, hire more mental health people and social workers. And uh, uh, say, why uh, do you need that? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what does that have to do with education? What, where is that in reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? Correct. The three R's, right? Yeah. And that's, that's uh, kind of the dynamic. But, but just to stab in that, you make me think back, and I remember um, the greatest gift that I received at any um, educational institution was having an instructor that encouraged me or demanded that I was curious. And as soon as I was curious, you know, number one, I, I don't have a problem with methamphetamines. Don't have anybody in my family that has a problem with methamphetamines. Why should I be curious about that? Because it affects us all. My tax dollars are going there just as quickly or more quickly than they are to other projects. You know, I, I, I know we have to wrap up here in a minute. I want to make a couple of comments if I can. And I, I, I implore you to each make uh, comments on it. If you would uh, two things, number one, I'm thrilled that y'all work together. I'm thrilled that we got you on at the same time. I'm delighted, delighted that our schools have this level of professionalism, this level of competence. And I'll, I'll, I'll be very frank. I have been to a lot of schools through my business that I would look at the administrator and think, I don't know that this is the right person for this job. But the fact of the matter is it's the only person they had. Right. or that they could afford in that area. And I'm, I'm not being derogatory in at all. I'm just complimenting you and thanking you so much for being that level of, of, of professional. And on another hand, <clears throat> this is the tough part. I am the uh, assistant. I'm, I'm the vice president of the computer club. So every year I end up at typically one of your facilities passing out a, a scholarship, $500 or something like this. And I joke and the kids don't usually get my humor. So that's okay. But I'm like, you know, the, 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 the village computer club, we scraped and saved nickels and dimes so we could come up with this and kids would just go, huh? What? Huh? <laughs> and Melissa in particular, because I've been to more of your uh, 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 award ceremonies for scholarships to see young men and women, <clears throat> excuse me. It always gets me come down the aisle and pick up a hundred thousand dollars worth of scholarships correct me if i'm wrong but they don't literally just give those away anymore you have to work for them and qualify them right melissa you do and and a lot of them it depends on what parameters the um the organization that's giving the scholarship have set up but um yes and it is very competitive we have students who will apply and apply and apply um, and we may have 15, 20 students apply for the same scholarship from the same group. And uh, so it, it gets very competitive and it's very difficult a lot of times for those groups to make a decision as to which student that goes to. And as I mentioned, the, the, the scholarship funds that those bring to those families. Uh, and I, one other thing we didn't mention, uh, many of these, their ROTC, their Army scholarships, their Navy scholarships, their military scholarships. I'm not going to stand on either side of the fence here about some of these issues, but I will make note, there are a lot of schools that will not allow military recruiters into their facilities. So, um, yeah, the award ceremony is moving. It's patriotic. It's impressive. 
And, and as I say, it's, it's like watching a cooking process, you know, for years and years, you know, you're putting ingredients in this pot and you don't know what it's going to be. And then on these award ceremonies, you see a cake or you see right. a beautiful souffle or something. And, and it, it's truly impressive. If, if you want to be a critic of the school system, please come with me to the award ceremony. <laughs> we will be happy to let you look. You know, one of the great things about ours, and I, I've not been to Fountain Lake, so I don't know, but to see people who have graduated from Jesseville and they've gone on to make whatever, make a profession, and they are coming back now and they are presenting scholarships to our students. Mm-hmm. That is moving to me. Yeah. Um, it says a lot about our, our community and our students. And I would uh, be remiss, uh, you know, our alumni association has a very strong framework uh, that kind of in that giving back element, but it's kind of organized in a slightly different manner and it comes through and, and, uh, you know, they're typically uh, giving anywhere from 10 to 15, $1,000 scholarships to students to kind of help get, get them a jump start uh, with their education uh, or technical career training uh, based on uh, what they're seeking to do. So, uh, yeah, it, it is, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the cake. That's the outcome. The outcome, you know, oftentimes we're buried in the context of, of trying to get to that outcome. And so graduate, not only graduation in my world being the finish line, but employment. And each of us, uh, you know, I I think uh, finding value and employment and direct intentional focus to employment is uh, really uh, allowing kids to be successful. And and so uh, uh, we start fifth grade uh, with a personal success plan, career interest inventory, and begin to guide that process and allow for them to kind of find their way towards uh, the area that they would want to engage and workforce into. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's always evolving. It, it, you know, whatever they choose at a very young age, their skill set may not align to that. And so giving them the flexibility to explore and bring in career presenters and, and all those other elements are things that allow for our children to kind of learn and grow in that context. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and we, oh, sorry, let's go ahead. Sorry, I just had one comment to, to make along with what Dr. Murphy said, too. I, even when I was in the classroom, I tried to, I, I taught high school math. And one of the things I tried to tell my kids, and this was back before when we were pushing everybody to go to college, it didn't matter, you were going to college. And so I fought that a little bit, I guess. And, and I would tell my students, I don't, I don't care whether you go to college you go to a trade school or you go out and you go directly to work. What my goal for you is, and and this is still my goal as a superintendent, I want them to be contributing members of society, not a drain on society. And and that um, I think that's probably one of our biggest challenges that we face is um, helping break that cycle in, in families and with students. What's a change of mindset? Yes. To some people, it really is. Michael, you had mentioned once before, and we had talked about this a little earlier, uh, you mentioned that there are challenges, and I know there are to, to Melissa too, challenges to having uh, gates, to be frank about it. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. roughly 50%, I'm assuming, Melissa, or 40% of your people are inside the gates and, 
and you know another significant percent for y'all for you, Michael. What what are the challenges of having gates? Well, I mean, the challenge that I've seen with it coming here as a, as a leader is is really how can I take the children that uh, the taxpaying dollar uh, serves and make sure that the retirement community gets to see those kids in some form and context. And so, uh, you know, we've tried to design some different activities, whether that's a choir coming in and and trying to sing or whether the band is uh, doing something at the kickoff of a golf tournament, but it's typically the children, but to make it a full package, you need those adults, those parents coming with them. And so because of the gates, it's pretty easy to pull a bus through the gate, but to get visitors passes for another 60 families and then make all of that work to where it meets the threshold of criterion. That was something as a school leader, I didn't anticipate being so challenging. And so it does create a little bit of a dynamic uh, that the gate's a barrier. Uh, when the community as a whole, when we have a, a school district, when I've served in public education, in the school district boundary is the community as a whole. And, and so we do have a little sense of uh, two separate communities under, if you will, one geographic boundary. And that's something that I've you know, tried to as a, as, as a veteran leader to try to figure out how, to, how do you, how, what key makes that work in, in terms of meeting the needs of both ends of that spectrum, because there was a lot of uh, taxpaying residents that, that, that don't find that true value of what they're paying because they never see those children. Does well, I, I've been coming here for 20 years and I'd never been to an award ceremony before. And, and I, I, you know, this is a perfunctory thing with Dennis, would you go present a scholarship? And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And it was one of the more enlightening things I'd ever seen. I found myself, <laughs> I found myself pouring through the, the, uh, the, the events going, okay, who's going to get this. And so-and-so is going to get this. And the Navy comes in here and the, mm-hmm. it was just an interesting now, you know, I, you know, I didn't have to see four years or t- 12 years of cake making, you know, I got to see the last 30 minutes of the edited script on the cooking show, you know, uh, let me come back to one other thing, if we can, before we wrap up here. And I know our time is getting away from us. Real quick question. I was speaking to Clara Nicolosi this morning, and I, I asked her about the millage and just said something to her. And she said, you know, the most important thing that I wish we could get across to people is for, for Fountain Lake, they're simply trying just to get on par with other millages. And I realized that's a significant disparity. I mean, in, in poorer areas, uh, lesser well-funded areas, they don't have such a high millage because the government's paying for a lot of this. Am I, am I mistaken? But, but how does that, how does that millage line out across the state? Cause every school district has a different millage. Is that right? Yes. And so, uh, you know, 25 mills being a, the required minimum, that's the unitary rate of tax that every school district is required to levy to receive state aid. And so that's the minimum. Uh, there are some districts that are on the operating side closer to uh, 28 to 30 mills. Um, Fountain Lake is at 34.8. Jesseville is at what, roughly 38? 38.4, I believe. Yes. Right. And, and so uh, in Garland County, those millage rates vary. So when you look through, you know, we're all looking through a lens here. Uh, as you look through the lens as a taxpayer, the overall millage rate will determine the tax paid. And, and so, uh, you know, Cutter, for instance, has a millage rate of 48.5. Uh, 
Uh, and all of that is relevant to what the local community chooses to vote through. So our Board of Education has put this initiative in front of the community with a unanimous vote to allow the community to vote on it on February the 8th. And the authorization of these five new mills will make the payment for the amount of money that we're borrowing. And with that, it would take our millage rate basically to be within uh, a half a mill of what Jesse Bill's millage rate is currently. Hmm. Hmm. I, I, w- I would see it as, you know, it, it, it seems once again, as it, as it seems eight miles away, it would seem like, come on, y'all are going to be identical. But really, there's a lot of disparity. And as we discussed earlier in another meeting of uh, Mountain Pine, another, what, six miles away, eight miles away, completely different format, completely different. You know, they're surrounded by national forest that typically doesn't pay a lot of tax, et cetera, et cetera. So, Randy, I I just want to go on record and say that any school leader working with a governing board, the intentionality is to not be the, uh, the, the individual group that, that all they ever seek is taxation. And, and so, you know, I don't get up in the morning and make a cup of coffee and say, how, what could we do to increase the livelihood of taxation today? I get up every morning and, and ask myself a question, how can we make a difference in the lives of children every day? And, and so, therefore, you have to align with that question, what barriers are in the way of meeting that objective? And, and so, we see that we have some facility barriers when we have children that start eating lunch at 10 o'clock in the morning and other children that don't get a lunch until 1 o'clock in the afternoon. We find that to be a nutritional barrier that we, we are trying to restructure by adding a second cafeteria as part of this proposal. So uh, there's elements here, and, and, and I've told everyone, and I would tell you guys as well, upon the conclusion of this, we will continue to have school. Uh, the dynamics of education will continue regardless of the outcome of this vote. Uh, the challenges the Board of Education takes on and I take on as a school leader could look different, definitely based on the outcome of the vote. So, so let me make this clear to make sure I'm understanding. You're saying that we have kids eating at 10 a.m. in the morning because we don't have enough cafeteria space for them to eat at 12 or, or 1130 or wherever. Right. So we have the we have one kitchen and, and that's where we prepare all the food. And we have a an original kitchen was built and an addition to the kitchen. And, and so that's where we eat. But we also have to, at this point in time, we pick up food out of those out of the original kitchen. And instead of sitting in the cafeteria, we walk down the sidewalk to the P.E. gym and have uh, lunch in the P.E. gym because we don't have enough room in the current cafeteria. So uh, the greatest constraint we face is food service. And then secondarily, the next constraint is classroom space. I was going to ask in the proposal that you had, and I, once again, I know we're running really long on time, so I apologize, but the uh, the workspace building, tell me more about that. Is that like a Votech for old people like me? Is that the term? So what we're trying to do there is expand programming with some flexibility, uh, looking for partnerships. One part of the vision of what we want to do next is, is we feel, you know, we've talked a lot about this impoverished group and bringing this group out of poverty. We believe that there's jobs in Hot Springs Village that would be very beneficial to a segment of our generational poverty. It could be a solid job 
and we could teach them a skill set and they might work for a golf course and consistently come to work. Those children are never exposed to those jobs. So part of the vision would be is is taking a group of kids out and showing them the different types of jobs that exist within the village. That's a localized approach to expanding a need for Hot Springs Village. Uh, we, we partner with National Park. There's the Saline County Technical Center. But what we're trying to put into this building is specific trade-based programs that kids don't have access to. For instance, we provide uh, certifications in welding currently for students right out of high school. And they can walk out there and knock down 60 grand out of high school with no additional training. Uh, we're looking at other areas of certification, whether that be local partnerships with plumbing or HVAC. Uh, we know the constraints in the workforce, and the more we can localize that, the more we think we can help our kids. And so this is kind of a flex space approach that we have where maybe one period uh, it's, it has an industrial look. We may need 1,800 square foot one period, but two periods later it breaks down and you're doing a 900 square foot space in two different locations. So you're, you're really designing it so that it's, it's not just a box that you're going to go into every period. It's, it's called flexible classroom space to accommodate the demands of the workforce because, quite frankly, the new demands 10 years from now we want to be able to adapt to because they may look different than they do today. Right out 27 years ago, 27 years ago, I was an IT tech, just beginning to be an IT tech. And I, so I watched them carry the, the welding equipment, the lathe, the, the, all the milling equipment, all the woodworking equipment. I watched them carry that out and we brought computers back in. And I thought, mm-hmm. I don't think this is a good idea that this may not end well, you know, <laughs> We got to go somewhere with this. Anyway, for Hot Springs Village, inside this is out. Part this, one. This is part one, by the way. Let's oh, just this is part one, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. We're, we're, we've obviously got a whole lot left to, uh, to discuss, but thanks for being on. It's been a pleasure. It really has. Melissa, Michael, Randy. For Hot Springs Village, I'm Dennis Simpson. He's Randy Cantrell. We will be back with part two. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hot Springs Village, Inside Out a podcast where Hot Springs Village, Arkansas is the star. Please subscribe to the podcast. You can do that by visiting our website, hsvinsideout.com, and tell a friend.